Hello, murder mystery and paranormal fans, and welcome to episode four of J.L. Delosier's The Photo Thief. My name's Jess, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. Previously, on The Photo Thief. We learn that the author of the mysterious journal is none other than Cassie. She wrote it specifically for our hero, Brennan, to try and convince him she has a special gift. She can speak to the dead, including to her best friend, Ruth. Could that possibly mean she could talk to his dead daughter, too? And speaking of besties, Brennan's buddy, Pete the Coroner, reveals Aaron's death ties into a pattern of suspicious behavior between their colleague Jim and the mob. Corruption that may rise to the highest ranks of the Philadelphia PD. Leland Dolan has fallen down the stairs and broken a hip, and Brennan is being tailed, making him realize that he and Pete are in danger. Chapter 22 November 9th Fifth Journal Entry Ruth and Paul had an argument today, which was shocking. Why? I shouldn't be able to hear Paul. I haven't heard Paul's voice since I was 12. Ruth has always drowned him out, him and the others. Either her control is slipping or they're getting stronger. Both possibilities are equally terrifying. He's an evil, monstrous man. Ruth's voice was clear, but Paul's was like an old-time radio, distant and distorted by static. I only heard about every third word he said. Sounds funny, doesn't it? It's not. Today, I heard my name. And then, I heard yours. Underneath, Ruth and Paul, other voices rumbled an unwelcome resurgence of unknown cause. Could it be my meds? My neurologist tweaked them after my last seizure. They've caused many side effects throughout the years. Brain fog, irritability, even formication, the feeling of bugs crawling across my skin. But not hallucinations. Never voices. I clapped my hands over my ears to drown out their angry words. I wanted them all to leave, even Ruth. I know I shouldn't. I haven't kept my promise of finding her killer. Not yet. Besides, she's my friend. Friends don't want friends to go away. But six years is enough. I don't remember what quiet sounds like. Paul is the only one strong enough to attack Ruth's dominance, and he seems to be growing stronger every day. Even so, I never see him like I do Ruth. I feel him, though, and it scares me. His presence is malevolent, like a thundercloud on the horizon, spreading insidiously until it blacks out the sky. Ruth has always held him back, kept him in check. What if she doesn't or can't? What will he do to me? To you, 
While they argued, the air in the photo room grew frigid. The lights flickered on and off, and the chandelier swung so wildly on its brass chain, I was afraid it would come crashing to the floor. At one point, Ruth slammed the piano lid shut, releasing a burst of random notes. She loves drama, thrives on it. Me, not so much. I awoke on the floor in the middle of the room with my head pounding and a bloody nose. Ruth stood over me, staring at the blood dripping from my nose with disgust and horror. It's all right now, Cassandra. He's gone. I won't let him hurt you. But what about everyone else? I asked. What about Pap and Detective Brennan and everyone who walks into this room? She strolled to the piano and delicately perched on its bench, clasping her hands in her lap like a schoolmarm. Her smile was colder than the room. I can only do so much. Chapter 23 As Brennan found out, badges are easy to clone. Easy, that is, for someone younger and more tech-savvy than himself. He kept the poor IT guy on the line for almost an hour, interrogating him as to how a dead cop could have swiped himself into the morgue. The IT guy guessed someone cloned the strip before shredding Tom's relinquished badge. No, he wasn't aware of other similar instances. At Brennan's insistence, the tech ran a search for Tom's identification code and got one other hit also for the morgue the previous month when Pete's office had been sacked. Someone had saved that clone for a year, awaiting the time when they'd need it most. That thought clamored around Brennan's brain as he brushed his teeth and climbed into bed. A patient criminal was an elusive one, the hardest kind to catch, the kind to haunt a detective's dreams, the kind who could turn a simple case into a nightmare, like a fall down the stairs. Insomnia, on the other hand, was a common thief, pocketing hours and leaving nothing but emptiness in its wake. A long, empty night. An empty soul. With an impatient toss of the covers, Brennan abandoned his bedroom. He paced the apartment aimlessly until a gentle tapping at Elle's window dispelled his inner turmoil with a single, simple command. Feed the crow. The bird refused to leave until he provided a midnight snack of fruit and crackers. Truth be told, he welcomed the company. He ruminated out loud, sharing his anxiety while the crow ate, occasionally bobbing its glossy head as if in agreement. At some point, he fell asleep on Elle's bed. When he awoke stiff and sore in the wee hours, the bird was gone, the window still open, and the bedroom was colder than Pete's morgue. He stumbled to the kitchen and lurched to a stop in front of the fridge. Hanging at eye level, secured by a magnet, was Elle's purple and black drawing of her friend the crow. He stared at its glittery lines until his eyes watered. It had been in his pants pocket. That much he remembered. He must have hung it during his sleep. Sleepwalking. Jesus. He really was losing his mind. He filled the old-fashioned percolator to the brim and brooded over his morning coffee until sunrise. A damned bird was not going to help him solve this case. Pete wanted no further involvement. He'd made that abundantly clear, and the captain was at the top of Brennan's short list of suspects. Even the IT guy could be on the take, which left internal affairs. The mere thought made his dark roast taste twice as bitter. 
While they would be the appropriate people to investigate a cloned badge, one that allowed a mysterious criminal carte blanche access to the entire station, they wouldn't give a crap about the potentially lethal repercussions for Pete and his family. Or Brennan. He and his entire inner circle, small as it was, could at best land and witness protection, or at worst at the bottom of the Schuylkill River. His options sucked. Last night's empty beer bottle sat atop a stack of manila folders. He grabbed it by its sticky neck, inhaled the residual hoppy aroma, and threw it in recycling. The glass shattered on impact. A round stain marked the bottle's prior position. He flipped the folder open to see if the moisture had bled through the pages. A black-and-white photo of a burly man scowled at him from inside the front cover. Above the photo, penned in the same elegant cursive that graced Cassia's journal, was a name. Paul Krug, 1936. That stare. Ice pick sharp, maniacal in its intensity. Face fleshy with jowls so prominent his thin lips seemed to disappear. He wore a long leather apron and stood in front of a shop with the sign reading, Krug's Grand Opening. Strings of sausage and thick hunks of ham decorated the windows. A butcher. Somehow Brennan wasn't surprised. He'd reviewed the six cold cases Cassie claimed to have solved, but not this one. This must be the second of the four murders she hadn't been able to crack. He'd stopped reading after Ruth. He scanned Cassie's painstakingly detailed notes. She'd organized and cross-referenced the evidence, which included scraps of newspaper articles, interviews, and police reports, into a one-page summary. Never married. No family of record. A solitary man based on the newspaper obituary. Shot through the face at point-blank range with a pistol in July of 1945. One casing, one bullet. The community mourned the closing of his shop, but not his death. They'd found carefully preserved body parts in his freezer. Tiny ones. Human. Holy shit. Brennan stopped scanning and dove in, reviewing the entire file. Located a few city blocks from Dolan Mansion, Krug's had been Society Hill's only butcher shop. Finances were in order. Paul had no prior arrests. Described by neighbors as polite but distant. The community was shocked, shocked by his murder, and even more surprised by the grisly find afterward. But someone knew what Paul Krug was doing, and that someone took the law into their own hands. Brennan frowned and rifled through the stack of folders until he found Ruth's. As with the butcher's file, the first page contained what was in essence an executive summary. God, he loved Cassie's methodical style. He refreshed himself on the details. Shot through the heart at close range with a pistol in June 1945. One casing, one bullet. Originally from Camden, she moved to Philadelphia when she wed her third husband, who owned a thriving Center City print shop. Though she'd never been caught by the police, Cassie described her as a serial killer. Two dead husbands in Jersey, two in Philly. According to Cassie's journal, that juicy tidbit of information came directly from Ruth's mouth. And that's where the crazy train careened off the tracks. Cassie's childhood friend and confidant, the woman who produced the lonely teen into investigating four mysterious unsolved murders, was a serial killer named Ruth who died in 1945. He sagged in his chair. He was going to need more beer. He had to admit the parallels between Paul's and Ruth's cases were compelling and implied a single perp, 
a killer of serial killers, with the murders all clustered in the heart of Philadelphia near the historic and creepy old mansion Cassie called home. The location made sense. The original pictures, Ruth's wedding, Krug's grand opening, were acquired for the local newspapers by Leland Dolan back in his days as a teenaged amateur photographer come photo thief. A teenager in the 1930s, especially a poor one, didn't have the means to travel far. Cassie had two more cold cases she'd yet to share. Brennan's newfound curiosity triggered a shiver of anticipation, the thrill of the hunt. Would they fit the same pattern? A single bullet fired by someone close enough to stare their victim in the eyes? Were they killed by the same gun? The bullets themselves might still be buried in the precinct's basement. The long-term evidence storage unit occupied half of the cellar opposite the pool and locker rooms. Affectionately called the stacks, the area housed the original cell blocks, now stuffed with a jumble of boxes and metal shelves stacked from floor to ceiling behind each cell's thick iron bars. He'd only been there once as a rookie. The jackass senior detective accompanying him slammed the cell door behind his back, locking him in. Then they discovered there was no key. Not anymore, anyway. A locksmith tried his best and failed. Too old, too rusty. It took a welder three hours to cut through the bars and locking mechanism with an oxyacetylene torch to set him free. He'd endured months of not-so-gentle ribbing afterward. He'd rather rip out his nose hair than revisit the stacks. But when subjected to modern forensic methodology, those old bullets might yield interesting new leads. The potential payoff was enough to stiffen his resolve. Come Friday, Aaron McConnell's investigation would be closed, and he'd have some time on his hands. First, he'd turn his report over to his boss. Afterward, he'd drag himself back to the stacks. Then, with evidence hopefully in hand, he'd ask Cassie for her remaining two unsolved cases. It'd be nice to work with a skilled partner again, even if she was 18 and believed her intel came from dead people. Call it atonement for failing to prove her mother's murder. With a plan firmly in place, he poured the rest of his coffee into a thermos and slogged to the office. The precinct was buzzing when he arrived. Every blaring radio, each bleeding phone made him wince. He needed a nap, and it was only nine. He caught up on garbage emails and those memos flagged as important, which never were, and struggled to stay awake through the mandatory midweek huddle, where the unit's detectives gathered to discuss their cases. The huddles were Captain Mattern's brainchild from when she was promoted, her contribution to modernizing the unit's workflow. Designed to identify potential overlap between cases, it usually degenerated into a bitch and raz session, sometimes good-natured, sometimes not, depending on whether the captain was in attendance. When his turn arrived, Brendan kept his update as succinct and surly as possible. Death by reverse swan dive, nothing exciting, on to the next. Aside from a few snide remarks about his haggard appearance, he escaped substantial blowback. The captain pointed to the next in line, but her gaze, inscrutable as always, flicked back to his throughout the session. Or maybe it was his imagination. He decided to skip the usual post-huddle chat fest and hurried back to his desk, intent on completing at least the skeleton of his report before lunch. He was staring at the blank form when Detective Tan wheeled her chair from her workstation to whisper in his ear. Don't look now, but the boss is heading your way. You might want to straighten your tie. She smirked and rolled away. Brandon kept his gaze fixed on his computer screen and pretended to be immersed in work. 
Captain Mattern was not deterred. She stopped in front of his desk. Not much of a briefing today, detective. I'm saving the good stuff for my report. He tapped random letters on the keyboard and imagined her thick eyebrows arching at his response. Which is due Friday. Friday, yes, I know. You'll have it by noon. I'd like it by ten. His jaw clenched. Okay, you'll have it by ten. She lingered as if expecting a more robust verbal battle. When he remained silent, she strode to her office and slammed the door. Its glass panels rattled from across the room. Brennan relaxed his jaw and slowly exhaled. Detective Tan shook her head. Whatever you did to earn a spot on the captain's shit list must have been epic. Epic. I like the sound of that. Brennan smiled grimly. Keep watching, I'm just getting started. The best is yet to come. By noon, Brandon had discovered that writing an open-ended yet factual report, chock full of nuance and innuendo, was harder than churning out a standard case file. The hot hands of death were a particular challenge. But the skeleton was done. Fill in a few details, attach Jim's crime scene photos, include Pete's new autopsy narrative, and by Friday at ten, the captain would have her report. Brennan logged off for lunch, walked toward the main exit, and dialed Pete's cell. The call went straight to voicemail. Brennan frowned. Pete never worked through lunch. Never. He tried Pete's desk and gave up after the tenth ring. A spark of anxiety kindled in his empty stomach. On a hunch, he stopped at the information desk inside the precinct's front door. Mind if I use your phone? He waved his cell in the air. Battery is dead. The board secretary gestured toward the desk. Brennan dialed Pete's direct extension again. He answered on the first ring. Coroner's office. Are you screening my calls? Brennan's anxiety fizzled, replaced by a spurt of anger. What? Of course not. You're the world's worst liar, Pete. You know that? I need your updated autopsy report. I'll email it to you. And the final results of the talk screen. Yeah, about that. Pete's voice trailed off. Where are you? At the front desk. We're not having this discussion with you standing in the most public place of the building. Suits me, I'll be there in ten. Brandon hung up before Pete could stammer a protest. While officially within the precinct, the morgue was located in a modern annex attached to the historic main building via a maze of corridors and a tunnel that ran under the busy city street above. Except at rush hour when frenzied commuters hurrying to the nearest SEPTA station clogged the sidewalks, Brennan found it quicker to walk around the outside of the building. He zipped his jacket, ducked his head, and headed into the crisp November air. He stopped short at the sight of a man in a Department of Public Works bucket truck installing sparkly holiday decorations on the streetlights. The worker caught him staring and shrugged. Save it, pal. I know what you're gonna say. Heard it six times already. It's only, what, the ninth? Tenth, maybe? We won't light him up until after Thanksgiving if it makes you feel any better. He went back to securing the decorations wireframe. Brennan did not feel better. It took him the rest of the walk to the morgue to figure out why. His crankiness had nothing to do with silver bells and giant wreaths. Hell would be bouncing out of her snow pants at the sight of holiday decorations, and his best friend, despite his protestations otherwise, was avoiding him. At least Pete had finally answered the phone. If he hadn't and wasn't puttering around the morgue, Brennan would have gone straight to his house and done a safety check. A knock on the door would have really gotten Pete's tinsel in a tangle. 
He slid his badge through the reader mounted outside the morgue's double doors. The indicator light flashed, but remained red. He repeated the action, but slower. Same result. He frowned. It had worked this morning on the time clock. He struggled to recall the last time he'd swiped into the morgue. Usually, he was with Pete. When he came alone, Pete's secretary, Joan, buzzed him in. To the right of the doors, a small square window offered a view of Joan's desk, while thoughtfully shielding the autopsy areas on the left. Pete's acrylic partitioned office sat directly behind. Brennan peered through the window's hazy glass. Joan was not at her desk. He glanced at his phone. 12.30. She was likely at lunch. But where was Pete? Brennan tapped on the glass. The morgue remained as still as its dead occupants. He pounded on the door with his fist. Pete's head popped out from under his desk like a whack-a-mole. He hurried out of his office to press the unlock button on Joan's desk. The buzzer sounded. The lock clicked. Brandon braced himself for a blast of cold air. He sauntered in, smiling to cover his relief. Hiding under your desk? Am I that unwelcome, Pete? I was not hiding. Brandon grinned at Pete's indignant expression. Okay, then let me guess. You dropped your donut? The corners of Pete's mouth twitched. That would be a crime. If you must know, I was crawling around on the floor for you. Pete opened his right hand. A tiny flash drive rested in his palm. My new computer tower is under my desk. I emailed you the autopsy and talk screen reports as usual. But given what happened to my last computer, I thought an external backup was in order. I know you have a report due on Friday. I'd hate for you to miss your deadline because of me. He tossed the flash drive at Brennan, who caught it midair. He tucked the device into his pocket. Pete shuffled a stack of papers on his desk. I also printed out the talk screen for you just in case. He handed Brennan a single sheet labeled with a yellow sticky note. I think my office is bugged. Act normal. Brennan stared at the bright yellow note, blinked, and folded the paper into his pocket with a flash drive. You know the real reason I'm here, right? Pete's expression froze and his fingers stopped their nervous shuffling. Brennan forced a slow smile, grateful that decades of experience had equipped him with a poker face equal to any professional gambler's. We always do lunch after successfully closing a case. I hate to break it to you, pal, but it's your turn to buy. And I'm hungrier than a pregnant rhino, so bring your wallet. Pete laughed and snatched his jacket off the back of his office chair. When are you not hungry? I'll answer that over lunch. Outside, Brennan made small talk about the premature Christmas decorations until Pete reminded him he was Jewish and truly couldn't give a shit. They chose the noisiest diner on the block. Once safely ensconced in a coveted corner booth, Brennan pulled the talk's report from his pocket and slapped it on the table. What the hell, Pete? He pointed to the neon sticky note. Are you sure? No, I'm not sure, but I'm noticing things, little things, like I think someone followed me home last night. The bell on the diner's door tinkled and he glanced over his shoulder. I wouldn't call that a little thing, Brennan paused. Have you told your wife? No, of course not. The less Elaine knows, the better. I never take my work home with me. Brennan imagined Pete lugging a backpack of organs and other body parts home and unsuccessfully fought to smother a grin. That's definitely a good thing. The grin faded. If I'd learned that lesson earlier, Julie and I might still be together. Maybe, maybe not. You were both under a lot of stress with L. Pete cleared his throat. Did you read the report? Not yet. Brennan crumpled the yellow sticky note into a ball and scanned Aaron's talk screen. He shook his head. 
Not sure what you're getting at, Pete. Unless I'm missing something, it looks consistent with what you told me previously from the prelim. Positive for benzos, barbs, and not much else. But read the amounts. Pete pointed to the first labeled substance, lorazepam. In the right-hand column, a number written in micrograms per liter was flagged with a red H. Brennan shrugged. Context, please. That's enough lorazepam to drop an elephant. Overdose level, for sure. A person would have to take at least a handful of pills to reach that level, yet I didn't find any undigested pills in Aaron's stomach. By comparison, there's barely any of the barbiturate, identified as primadone in her system. She probably took one pill the night before to help her sleep. Primadone. Sounds familiar. Where have I heard that before? Brandon mentally flipped through his notes, trying to place the name. One of Elle's treatments, maybe? Primadone's typically used for seizures and tremors. Did her brain tumor cause seizures? No. Brandon pressed his lips into a tight line. We put her on hospice before it went that far. But Aaron's daughter, Cassie, has seizures. He pictured the afternoon of Aaron's wake when, with Leland Dolan's blessing, he'd searched the mansion's bedrooms and found Cassie's pill bottles. Kepra, Primadone, and Lorazepam. Pen in hand, a waitress sauntered to their table. Brennan shoved the talk's report into his pocket. They ordered, though his appetite had evaporated. Once she was out of earshot, Pete leaned across the table. I know what you're thinking, but it's common for kids to take their parents' meds and vice versa. It's especially common with kids on amphetamines for ADHD. Parents love those stimulants. They divert the hell out of them. Just because Aaron had a tiny amount of her daughter's primadone in her system means nothing more than she took one. Period. The lorazepam is the problem. Do you know how much Cassie was prescribed? I don't, but I took pictures of the labels. It wasn't just Cassie. I also found a bottle of lorazepam in Amber Cervello's apartment. He scrolled through his phone. Here they are. Amber was on one milligram as needed for a sleep and anxiety. Cassie takes one milligram daily for a seizure prevention. Pete folded and unfolded his napkin into origami-like squares. Those dosages are far too low to account for Aaron's blood level. Amber's bottle was missing 28 out of the original 30 pills. But I still should have found undigested tablets, pill casings, residue, something. Injected? No needle marks. Trust me, after I found those weird burns on her chest and back, I performed a comprehensive skin exam under magnification. If she had a puncture somewhere, it was extremely well hidden. Her husband is a surgeon. I know. Pete dropped his napkin on the table. There is another way. I researched it. Lorazepam comes in a concentrated liquid. Just one milliliter, a quarter of a teaspoon, has eight times the amount of medication contained in a single one of Cassie's pills. Put a full teaspoon in someone's morning coffee and you've got a lethal dosage that's rapidly absorbed with no puncture marks and no pill residue. She would have died even if she hadn't fallen down the stairs. The fall was just a cover. And I'm sure that's exactly what you said in your revised report. No. Pete stared at the table. I told you, I'm out. Yet you made me a flash drive of the files for safekeeping. You looked up everything there is to know about lorazepam. You're not acting like someone who's out, Pete. You don't want to be out. You're better than that and you know it. You just want to protect your family and maybe save your hide in the process. I get it. But if anyone asks, you're going to have a tough time reconciling a bland autopsy report with a smoking gun of a talk screen. 
Not really, I do it all the time. In this case, the primary cause of death remains traumatic brain injury due to a mechanical fall. I just added a comorbid condition, accidental overdose. The waitress returned with their food. Pete flashed a strained smile. Can I get mine package to go, please? Gotta get back to the office. The waitress muttered something under her breath and stalked back to the kitchen, returning a minute later with a styrofoam container. Pete tipped his plate into the box, cursing when a greasy chunk of pastrami splattered on the table. Brandon tapped the top of the styrofoam container. You know those things are bad for the environment. Pete scowled, wiped his napkin over the mess, and tossed some bills on the table. Brandon shook his head. We're supposed to be acting normal. The Pete Ecker I know does not eat and run. Or in this case, order and run. He enjoys his food in a leisurely fashion. Yeah, well, I'm going to be off for a while, and I have a lot of loose ends to tie up before the wife and I skip town. Brennan raised an eyebrow. In a normal world, Pete Ecker never takes vacation. I booked a two-week trip to Hawaii. Second honeymoon, long overdue. I've been promising Elaine for years. Now seems as good a time as any. As we've been recently told, regret like death is permanent. He slid from the booth. I'll call when we get back. Pete grabbed his to-go container and left. He paused at the door, his expression a muddled mix of emotions. Take care of yourself, will ya? Brandon nodded and raised fork to mouth in the habitual act of eating. Despite the diner's ambient chatter, Pete's departure left Brandon alone in his corner booth, enveloped in a gloomy bubble of solitude. His cell chirped a reminder. He didn't look at the calendar. He already knew what it said. The phone hummed a different alert, this time indicating a text. He glanced at the screen, swallowed too fast, and choked on meatloaf with a sight of guilt. Pap did great. Discharge tomorrow, maybe. Thought you might want to know. Shit. He should have checked on them. Or at least on her. He tapped out a quick response. Fantastic. He paused. I read Paul Krug's case file last night. Interesting stuff. Ready for the rest? Yes. Meet me in reading terminal at the donut stand tomorrow at 10. His fingers hovered over the screen. Months ago, at his counselor's advice, he'd scheduled the day off. A mental health day, she'd called it. He was fairly certain reading through gruesome cold cases was not what she had in mind. Perfect. See you then. He set the phone on the table only to be interrupted by yet another chirp. The neglected calendar reminder popped onto the screen. Flowers. He swiped it away. He'd deal with that tomorrow. Chapter 24 The reading terminal market was a magical place, a vibrant reflection of an eclectic city that cherished its past. The Byzantine maze of restaurants, shops, and grocery stalls offered good eats, as Brennan's pop would say. Italian meats, a kosher deli, fresh produce, traditional Philly cheesesteaks, exotic spices, and everything in between. Brennan did most of his shopping there, except maybe the spices. His spice racks started with salt and ended with pepper. Every Sunday, he'd follow his nose or let the throngs carry him along while he imagined what the market must have been like back in the 1800s when the Reading Railroad operated the train station above. It saddened him how much Elle hated the market. Frightened by the clamor, the glassy-eyed fish, and hunks of freshly butchered meat, she'd bury her face in his shoulder, only chancing a peek when tempted by one of the three stalls she found sufficiently enticing. 
the candy shop, the Amish bakery, and the flower stand. He'd hoped that one day, when she was older, she'd learn to love the market in all its chaotic glory as much as he. That day never came. His right temple pounded with the abrupt onset of a headache. His own fault, for sure. Last night was another late one. He'd stayed up, determined to finish his report so he wouldn't have to think about it again until tomorrow. He just logged off his computer when his wife called. Ex-wife. He still got that wrong. His counselor would be disappointed. Julia was a transplanted Floridian, having moved to Philly for her doctorate studies. She never learned to love the city. She especially hated the market. What he called charm, she labeled grime. She missed the sun, the vibrancy of her Latina community, her mother's ropa vieja. He wasn't surprised when she chose to move back to the beach after Elle died. She tried to take Elle before, arguing the medical care would be better at the Mayo Clinic near her parents' home in Jacksonville. Brennan balked, touting Chops, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia's stellar reputation. Truthfully, he thought of not holding his baby's hand, being her strength during her treatments terrified him. And that was the beginning of the end of their marriage. She blamed him for Elle's death. He blamed himself more. The what-ifs tormented him day and night and ate away their marital bonds like a corrosive acid. What if they had taken Elle to Mayo instead of Chop? What if they'd been more aggressive instead of placing her on hospice when the suffering seemed too much to bear? At the time, they thought they were making the best decision for Elle. Maybe they should have done more. He should have done more. Julia claimed to be just checking in. He knew better. She hadn't checked on him since the day the ink dried on the divorce papers. She was looking for a shoulder to cry on, even though she had her parents and the Florida sunshine, and probably a boyfriend by now. And what did he have? Pete. He had, wish you were here, Honolulu, Pete. The conversation soured quickly and ended with profanity and tears. Then, once again, Brennan couldn't sleep. He'd thought ahead and bought more beer, hence the hangover. He winced with another sharp jab of pain. Despite the hour, the market seemed unusually frenetic. Cassie had wisely chosen a meeting time after breakfast and before the lunchtime rush, yet the jostling crowd buzzed with energy and the fishmonger's strident calls hung in the dank air. Even the market's usual odor, a heady mix of spice and grease held strange undertones. For the first time, Brennan detected decay, the cheerless smell of a 150-year-old building infused with rotting meat and the filth of a thousand footprints per day. Maybe Elle and her five-year-old wisdom had sensed what he just now perceived. The flower stall occupied the terminal's north corner. He stared vacantly at the wicker baskets overflowing with freshly cut blooms. Can I help you? A middle-aged woman with lilac hair and tortoiseshell glasses smiled over a vase of fragrant white lilies. Funeral flowers, his mother called them. Brennan rubbed his nose. I need a bouquet. Thirty dollars worth, please. An arrangement or loose? It'll be tough to do something in a vase for that price. Loose is fine. Can you throw in some purple ones? It's her favorite color. And black if you have any. The woman peered over the rim of her gaudy frames. Mother Nature does not birth black flowers. Brennan stared at her pastel hair and bit back a retort. Fine, mix them up then. Maybe something pink instead. Surprise me. The woman fussed over selecting an assortment of blooms, gathering them in green tissue paper and binding the bunch with a shiny pink ribbon. 
She'll love these, she winked. Whatever you did will be forgiven. Brennan clenched his jaw. I can only hope. The tissue paper crinkled in his fist. He paid in cash and flowers held high to avoid the crush of humanity stocked the Amish bakery. The sweet aroma of fried dough dusted with sugar always drew a crowd. Cassie, cruller in hand, loitered at the counter. Would you like a donut? She pointed over her shoulder at the enticing array behind her. No, I'm good. Let's grab a seat. I'm looking forward to reading those last two cases of yours. Reading Terminal Market boasted a central plaza which held a jumbled assortment of mismatched tables and chairs suitable for a quick dine and dash and nothing more. Lunchtime was standing room only. The perpetual din and angry stares from those coveting a seat precluded leisurely conversation. Brennan laid the bouquet on a tiny table tucked awkwardly between a rusty support post and a garbage can. His folding metal chair wobbled with every fidget. Cassie wiped her sticky fingers and pulled two manila folders from her bag. She placed them next to the flowers, taking care not to bruise the delicate blooms. Her gaze lingered on the vibrant mix of carnations, mums, and baby's breath. For L? He straightened in his seat. Yes. She nodded, her expression downcast. It's her birthday. The market's pandemonium receded. A rush of adrenaline cleared the melancholy that had clouded his mind since sunrise. How did you know? I told you before, I accessed L's medical record using my father's credentials. That's how I found your address, and her birthday. Cassie stroked a pink carnation, its pale petals as soft and dewy as a baby's lips. My pap started as an investigative reporter, remember? He always researches his inner circle. Now that he's older, more often than not, I'm the one conducting that research. I wasn't aware I was part of his inner circle. You should be flattered. Pap is quite discriminating. Brennan shuffled the pair of files. How's his hip doing? Great. Still hoping to come home either later this afternoon or early tomorrow. His pain is controlled. He's out of the wheelchair and he's already taken a few steps with a walker. He refused to go to a rehab hospital, but his doctor said as long as we can arrange for home nursing to start in the morning, he should be good to go. She paused. He's looking forward to your visit. My visit? Brennan frowned. You mean at the hospital? I never said anything about a visit. Oh, are you sure? He said you were supposed to visit him today. I thought that meant you'd made arrangements. She trailed off, fluttering her hands in confusion. No, we did not. Brennan silently seethed. He was being summoned, and old King Dolan was using his great-granddaughter as the unwitting page. He pulled out his phone to mask his annoyance. While we're on the subject of visiting strangers, Pap's hardly a stranger to you at this point. I've been meaning to test that super-recognizer ability of yours. Have you ever seen any of these people? He held up a photo of Jim taken during his birthday bar crawl a year ago. No, never. About him. He did the same with Pete. Cassie pursed her lips. Yes, he gave a talk about autopsies a few years ago at the library. Voices from beyond the grave. How a corpse can speak. I attended, of course. Of course. It was really good, as I recall. He pulled up the precinct's website. Captain Mattern, sporting a rare smile, graced the homepage. What about her? Cassie nodded. She visited the house over the summer. Early July, I think. She frowned and leaned closer to the small screen. But she wasn't wearing a uniform or a badge. 
I answered the door. She said she was the director of some charity my parents support and that she had a meeting with my mother. They spent over an hour talking in the library. Did you overhear anything? No, the pocket doors were shut. I wouldn't have paid attention anyhow. Their charity work bores me. It's all for show. Gotta keep up appearances, you know. Was your father home? No, he was working. Brennan, mind racing, clicked off his phone. Showing her the pictures had been a long shot. He hadn't really expected her to recognize any of them, but if she did, he would have placed his bet on Jim, not the captain. You're sure it's the same person? I told you before, I never forget a face. I couldn't if I tried. It's a blessing and a curse. You could get a mighty fine job at one of the lettered agencies, FBI, CIA, NSA, with that curse. Her face brightened. Really? I hadn't thought of that. The happy glow faded. But with my seizures. Lots of people with seizures hold full-time jobs. Who told you you can't? Your father? Amber? I mean, I wouldn't want you flying me around in an airplane, but picking up perps from a crowd? That's a whole different skill set. Between your research abilities and the super-recognizer thing, they'd be lucky to have you. He flipped open the top file. A photo of a smiling man in black robes and a stiff white collar adorned the inside cover. Who do we have here? Father Salvatore Pignotti, a priest, obviously, in my third unsolved case. He baptized my pap. When was that? 1920. Back in the Dark Ages, eh? More or less. What does Ruth have to say about her friendly friar? She told me Father Pignotti married her to her fourth and final husband. She said she knew even then there was something off about him. Brennan furrowed his forehead. Huh. Weird how everything intersects. The Philadelphia neighborhoods were smaller then. According to Pap, everyone knew everyone and their business. Cassie shifted in the uncomfortable seat. You should probably read that somewhere else, somewhere more private. The pictures are nasty. Nastier than the butchers? Yes. Brennan raised an eyebrow. If this case followed suit, the priest was no saint and someone offed him for a reason. He heeded Cassie's warning and closed the file. Leisure reading for tonight, then, after... After... After you visit L. Right. Brennan pushed away from the table and winced as the metal chair screeched across the concrete floor. And maybe your pap, too. Cassie threw her purse over her shoulder. Take him a bag of Jordan almonds. A bag of what? Candy-coated almonds. He adores them. You'll be on his good side forever. Candy shops around the corner, right behind the bakery. I'm familiar. Call me once you've read the cases and we can get together to brainstorm ideas. I can't wait to hear your theories. She waved and disappeared into the crowd. Sure, he mumbled. Why not? Somewhere to his right, a griddle sizzled with grease. The unmistakable aroma of steak, onions, and melting cheese wafted his direction. Was it too early for lunch? His stomach rumbled a reply. Never. First a cheesesteak. The Jordan almonds could wait. Chapter 25 Brennan, holding a damp cloth in one hand and the tissue-wrapped flowers in the other, stood outside the cemetery's arched iron gate. He always carried a wet rag when visiting. His little girl's headstone was invariably sullied with something. Bird shit, mud, dried tree pollen, you name it. Once he'd even found a crayon. What kind of parents let their child scribble on a gravestone? His face flushed at the memory. 
Society Hill's historic cemeteries were closed to funerals unless you belonged to an old and obscenely rich family with an existing plot or a crypt, like the Dolans. Hell, therefore, was buried on the city's northern outskirts. Despite being just seven miles from his apartment, it took a half hour by car and most of his good humor to get there. He tried taking the train once. He ended up whacking a pickpocket with his flowers. It was gentler than punching him in the mouth. The tiny cemetery, a green oasis in an asphalt desert of strip malls and busy streets, was anything but peaceful thanks to the ever-present roar of traffic. But rows of willows stood gentle guard, their weeping branches murmuring condolences into the wind. The iron gate was locked at night to cut down on vandalism, and as an added bonus, the humble little graveyard was rarely crowded. Brennan had seen a handful of people over the past six months. After mere weeks of tearful pilgrimages, most drifted away from their public displays of sorrow and returned to the normal ebb and flow of their lives. A few like him persisted. He noticed patterns. The elderly visited more often and usually brought those god-awful plastic bouquets designed to survive anything except the melting heat of a nuclear holocaust or an asteroid strike. Young women formed the other cohort of frequent flyers. They visited graves bearing tiny headstones like L's. He'd taken to placing morbid bets with himself on how long the others would last. He'd been wrong only once, having misjudged a woman about his age who haunted a plot with an adult-sized memorial. A widow, he assumed. He saw her at least once per week. At first, her eyes, puffy and red, avoided his. Gradually, they began nodding acknowledgments from across the swath of stone-studded grass, replete with plastic flowers and wreaths. They'd never spoken, preoccupied as they were with their grief. Today of all days, she seemed determined to break that comfortable pattern. He watched the conflict play across her face as he approached his daughter's grave. She stared at his daughter's tiny stone, took a step in his direction and hesitated. She squared her shoulders and tried again, striding across the grass to where he stood, clutching the tissue wrapper bouquet. She stuck out her hand. Brianna. Dan. I'm sorry for your loss. She winced as if realizing the banality of her words. Thank you. She fixed her gaze on the flowers. I see her sometimes. His grip on the fragile stems tightened. Who? Your daughter. She winced again. Your other daughter. She was here yesterday. I watched her stand here and talk for the better part of a half hour. She left the bear. She pointed toward El's grave. Brennan stared at the usually empty space in front of the stone. On the left, a collection of shiny objects, bottle caps, gum wrappers, even an earring, formed a neat pile. On the right, a ratty stuffed bear with glassy eyes rested with its back against the cold granite. Between them, a single black feather fluttered in the breeze. No. He shook his head and blinked. The bizarre diorama did not change. This girl, does she have curly red hair? Yes, sometimes she brings her cat with her, a tabby with amber eyes. Or it follows her in, at least. I see it skulking in the bushes. She paused. She's not your daughter? I assume from the date on the stone, I mean, I assume this was her younger sister. Why else would she visit so often? Brennan stooped, hiding his face while he struggled to produce a plausible explanation that didn't involve a murder investigation, talking photos of the notorious McConnell family. He placed the bouquet next to the bear and stood up too soon based on her reaction to his expression. 
She took a step back, her face stricken with remorse. You know what, this is none of my business. I'm sorry for bothering you, forgive me. I just thought it was sweet that she visits on her own and spends so much time talking to her sis, uh, friend. I wasn't sure you knew and I thought it might make you happy. It does, she's, she was Elle's babysitter. They loved each other. The lie rolled off his tongue with surprising ease. Thank you. The woman nodded and flashed a tentative smile. She walked across the grass to her car and waved as she drove through the gate. The willows whispered goodbye. Brennan exhaled between his teeth. He picked up the bear, damp with frost. It was old and well-loved with a button in its left ear. He'd seen it before during his investigation of Dolan Mansion. It had sat on a shelf in Cassie's bedroom. He swiped his forearm over his eyes. Yes, Ellen Cassie had frequented the same library, overlapping visits several times a month. Yes, his daughter often babbled about, and to the red-haired princess in the corner, sometimes loudly enough for him to see the corners of Cassie's mouth twitch into a smile, despite her grim reading material. Was that little bit of a connection enough? While Cassie stood talking to Elle, could his daughter possibly somehow be talking back? He struggled to suppress the unrealistic surge of hope, pushing it to the deep recesses of his mind, where it was sure to fester. Happy birthday, baby, he whispered, placing the bear back where he'd found it. With the damp cloth, he polished the granite headstone until the reflecting light made his eyes tear. Time to go home. Head bowed against the low sun, he trudged back to his car for the long ride home. His counselor had warned him to expect this. She even gave it a label, the trauma of firsts. The first anniversary, the first major holiday, like the rapidly approaching Thanksgiving. And today's trauma, the first missed birthday. The firsts, she claimed, were the hardest. It got easier with time. His aching heart hoped she was right. Chapter 26 Father Salvatore Pignotti was one sick bastard. Brennan blinked and rubbed his dry eyes. He'd started reviewing the priest's file as a distraction after his aggravating commute home from the cemetery. Four hours later, he'd finished both case reports. The pair of open files lay empty, their contents scattered across his kitchen table. Gruesome black and white photos rubbed corners with dry police reports, witness testimonies, and miscellaneous ephemera. He shook his head, stunned by what he'd read. Stunned for feeling stunned. He'd been a homicide detective for going on twenty years now. Not much was supposed to shock him. Yet here he was, unsettled over a pair of eighty-year-old cold cases. He'd read Father Pignotti's first. The priest had a thing for nuns, the older and more pious the better. According to a written statement he'd provided upon arrest, he stopped short of calling it a confession. He believed strongly in the cleansing power of pain. Pain revealed those souls who weren't worthy or not ready for admission to heaven. It was his duty to torture. And torture he did. After a nun staggered to safety and his crimes were made public, he disappeared into the custody of the Catholic archdiocese. Nine years later, someone found him and brought him back. Father Pignotti, each blighted hand bound by butcher's twine to a silver crucifix, was found on the altar of the Cathedral Basilica of Saints Peter and Paul in August 1945 with a bullet through his heart. His wide eyes stared at the vaulted ceiling in eternal horror as if he'd seen the devil himself. 
And maybe he had. Hardy Taylor's case was tame by comparison. Photos revealed a dapper man with slicked back hair and the smarmy smile of a sociopath. He owned a speakeasy turned club, the members only kind that fed society's elite over the dinner hour but offered more carnal fare late at night. Boys, girls, gay and straight, he provided something for everyone and was handsomely compensated for it. When the club was shuttered for prostitution in 1936, Hardy got off easy thanks to his influential acquaintances. His business moved underground, and when the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard quadrupled in size during the war, he added a new specialty, catering to Marines and sailors on shore leave. Most left happy. The gay ones left dead, strangled by their dog tags, and dumped in the street like garbage. Which is where, in the fall of 1945, they found Artie. The blood-encrusted dog tag cinched around his neck belonged to a dead Marine, but not any of Artie's victims. The 19-year-old from Mississippi was one of the 12,000 who had died or gone missing in the Battle of Okinawa. His remains were never returned, but somehow his dog tags had made it home. The case was quickly closed due to its delicate nature. The coroner labeled Artie's death, as well as the others, as accidental erotic asphyxiation, which Brennan doubted. Homosexuality was a crime in those days, and after poring over the details and character profiles, he suspected Artie was simply a bastard who liked to kill gay servicemen for sport. And whoever killed Artie took exception. Brennan gathered the photos one by one, giving them another long look in case he'd missed any details before stuffing them in their appropriate folder. By now, the late afternoon sun had begun to wane. If he was going to visit Dolan in the hospital and ply him with Jordan almonds, he'd better get a move on. He had a new and burning desire to chat with Leland Dolan. A theory festered, one that had developed insidiously as Brennan read, then metastasized like a cancer the longer he stared into Father Pignotti's glassy eyes. Like the husband killing Ruth and Butcher Paul, Artie and Father Pignotti were serial killers, but the latter cases varied in one key detail. Artie had been strangled, not shot, and Father Pignotti had been lightly tortured, as the police report so dryly stated. Their deaths were slower, more painful, strong evidence that for the killer, their murders were personal. Close-up photographs of the priest's bloodied hands revealed fragments of bamboo jammed under the fingernails, a technique made familiar in the States by servicemen returning from the South Pacific after World War II like Battle of Okinawa hero and prisoner of war Leland Dolan. Dolan had been baptized by those hands. Those same hands blessed Ruth's fourth marriage. When Ruth's high society wedding and the priest's crimes became sensational news in 1936, it was a 16-year-old photo thief named Leland Dolan who provided the papers with pictures. Nine years and one world war later, the villainous pair was killed by bullets through their black hearts. A pattern was emerging. Dolan was the common thread. Brennan weaved through downtown traffic, his mind spinning as fast as his wheels. Prodded by Ruth, her imaginary best friend, Cassie, had solved a wall full of crimes, yet she claimed she couldn't crack these cases, a quartet of brutal murders possibly committed by her beloved pap. One of those cases was Ruth's. That seemed awfully coincidental. Premeditated, even. He screeched to a late stop at a red light and glanced guiltily in his rearview mirror at the squeal of tires behind him. The black sedan's tinted windshield precluded eye contact, which was a good thing. Dude was probably flipping him the bird. Most Philadelphians would have run that light. 
While his car idled, Brandon thumbed through the pictures of Cassie's journal on his phone, searching for entry number three in a line he only vaguely recalled. None of us can see our own killer's face. A quirk of the afterlife, I guess. But Ruth had been shot through the heart at close range. She had to have seen who killed her. Whether Ruth's ghost remembered was anybody's guess. Cassie's elaborate rules of the afterlife and its populace of spirit seemed arbitrary at best. A truck rumbled past, hitting a pothole deep enough to drown a giraffe. The loud clang jolted his attention from the screen. Shit. The light turned from green to yellow. He floored it. The sedan did the same. They didn't honk. He adjusted the angle of his rearview mirror as he rounded the next corner. They almost sat through a green light and the bastards didn't honk. A couple of unnecessary lefts and one hard right later and his suspicions were confirmed. He was being followed. Finding a place to pull over in downtown during rush hour was nigh to impossible. The hospital's well-lit and trafficked parking deck was as safe a place as any to let the scene play out. He lucked into a spot near the exit with its security gate and cameras and waited with the engine on, gear in reverse, and foot hovering over the accelerator. Your move, asshole. The black sedan cruised to a stop lengthwise behind his bumper, blocking his car in place. Shit again. His pop's voice echoed through his memory. Poor decisions pay off poorly. He pulled his gun from the holster, tucked under his jacket, and placed it in his coat pocket. At the end of the row of parked cars, an elevator dinged. A group of women wearing scrubs strolled out of the elevator and headed toward the exit. Now, with a bevy of witnesses, was as good a time as any to make a move of his own. He dialed dispatch. This is Detective Daniel Brennan, District 6, badge number 50432. I've been followed by a black sedan into the ground level of a hospital parking garage at 10th and Walnut. Contact pending. Please stand by. He put the call on speaker and the camera on video. Standing by. The female voice at the other end was crisp and professional. With one hand in his pocket and the other on his cell, Brennan slid from his car and quickly rounded the hood, relying on the car's partial protection should he be met with a spray of bullets. At his back, a waist-high cement wall separated him from an alley. He glanced over his shoulder and got a whiff of rot. Didn't matter. If things went south, he was fully prepared to roll over the wall and land in a heap of garbage. The sedan's doors opened. Two large men in expensive suits with green pocket handkerchiefs exited to stand side by side. Heavy-lidded and impassive, they stared him down with their burly arms folded across their chests, which was all right by him. Crossed arms meant visible hands. They weren't holding guns. He raised his phone in the air, camera lens pointed at their faces. Smile pretty, boys. Care to tell the police department who you are and why you're following me? The larger of the two smiled. Brennan smirked back. At least one of you can follow directions. The smile vanished. The man took a step forward. Brennan tightened his grip on the gun. A level above, a door slammed, triggering a car alarm. The horn echoed through the cement garage. Wings fluttered behind him as a flock of startled birds took flight. A crow swooped by Brennan's ear and landed on the roof of the black sedan. Its brown eyes stared at the back of the mobster's thick neck. Dispatch spoke through the speaker. The disembodied voice held a tinge of concern. Status please, Detective Brennan. Stable, continue to stand by. The man stared Brennan in the eye. Regret like death is permanent. Your coroner friend made the right decision. Now it's your turn. You know what to do. He cocked his head at his partner and they returned to their vehicle. 
The crow took flight, leaving a large, chalky mess on the sedan's windshield and hood. The exit gate opened and closed, and the sedan disappeared into city traffic. Brandon exhaled. All clear, dispatch. Thank you for your support. Anytime, detective. The relief in her voice was audible. You'll be filing a report? Of course, video included at no extra charge. She chuckled, and he disconnected the call. The car alarm abruptly stopped. In the relative quiet, his pulse, too fast and too loud, pounded in his neck. He closed his eyes and took a slow, steadying breath. That could have gone bad, very bad. The green silk hankies, those were Beck McConnell's men. They wanted him to know. That was the point. Point taken. He would not be filing an incident report, not until he turned in his investigation files to Captain Mattern tomorrow. The video was his bargaining chip, hard proof he was being targeted. Proof that Ryan McConnell, via his big brother Beck, was trying to influence the investigation. And depending on the captain's response to his briefing, proof that she didn't care. Brandon grabbed the case files from his car. He kept the gun in his pocket for safekeeping. He might need it after his visit with Dolan was complete. He hurried through the garage toward the hospital's main entrance, aware from prior experience that only the emergency room doors boasted metal detectors. The hospital's gleaming lobby teemed with visitors, and he slowed his pace to a casual stroll, foregoing the elevator to run the stairs. Six flights later, he regretted his decision. He arrived at Dolan's floor, sweaty and out of breath but alive, at least for the moment. As one of Philly's elite, Dolan was afforded a spacious and private corner room at the end of a long corridor. Brandon raised his fist to knock. The door flew open before his knuckles met wood. A young nurse, tears flowing down her cheeks, rushed out of the room and ran down the hall. Chest tight with anxiety, Brandon peered around the door jamb. Dolan sat gripping the edge of his bed. For God's sake, come in and shut the damn door before they send in another one. Lock it if you can. Brennan glanced over his shoulder at the nurse's station where the young nurse, dabbing her eyes and gesticulating wildly, was talking to an unseen person behind the desk. He entered and shut the door behind him. The room had two walls of windows with decent city views. A third wall held a large screen TV, private bathroom, Wi-Fi, a hobnailed chair in the corner. The only thing missing was a minibar. He bobbed his head. Nice. The IV pump beeped, reminding him he was in a hospital. Dolan scowled. Turn that thing off, will you? I told them I'm leaving in the morning come hell or high water. I don't need it anymore. Pulled the needle out of my arm an hour ago. Missy was determined to put it back in. Needs the practice, I think. Brennan stared at the electronic array. I have no idea how to operate this machine, but I can quiet it down for a while. He jabbed at the silent alarm button and the beeping stopped. He learned that trick with L. Good enough, Dolan gestured for Brennan to sit. Without a word, Brennan pulled the bag of Jordan almonds from his pocket and offered them to Dolan. He accepted with an appreciative nod. An odd number, I hope. Excuse me? The old man held the cell phone bag to the light as if counting the candies. Tradition. In the old world, every party and wedding reception has these in dishes or as favors. And always an odd number. Strong, indivisible, like a marriage. He glanced at Brennan's bare ring finger. Or like marriage should be. The heat rose in Brennan's face. What do you want, Mr. Dolan? You called this meeting. 
The old man's eyes narrowed. To the point, I like that. He untwisted the metal ties, cinching the cellophane bag. What have you discovered about my errand? A firm rap on the door offered Brandon a reprieve. A male nurse entered the room. Dolan raised a staying hand. Don't even bother. Just take that damn thing away. I'm allowed to refuse. I'm still in my right mind, you know. The nurse muttered something under his breath, unplugged the pump, and wheeled it from the room. The door slammed behind him. Dolan chuckled. I'll be happy when I'm gone. A lot of folks will. Brennan's gaze followed the sagging neckline of Dolan's thin hospital gown. The faint burns on his chest had become redder and more obvious with time. A few had blistered, and damn if they didn't look exactly like handprints. Living and dead, it seems. He opened the case files to Father Pignotti and Artie's photos and placed them on the bedside table next to a folded newspaper. Look familiar? Dolan squinted his milky eyes. Can't say that they do. He slipped the newspaper out from under the corner of one of the files and dropped the open bag of almonds in its place. The candy spilled across the table, dotting the macabre photos with pastel splashes of color. Grimacing, he carefully lifted his legs onto the mattress and reclined against the raised head of his hospital bed. With a flick of his finger, Brennan scrolled through the photos on his phone until he landed on those he'd taken of the other two files. How about her? He held the phone to Dolan's face so Ruth, replete in her vintage wedding gown, could stare the old man in the eye. The hiss of oxygen flowing through the cannula in Dolan's nose filled the silence. Dolan nodded almost imperceptibly. I took that photo back in the day. Marriage didn't last long, if I recall. Ended badly, real badly for him, the poor sap. He picked the wrong girl. Gotcha. The right side of Dolan's face chronically drooped, which Brennan assumed was due to residual weakness from the old man's prior stroke. When Dolan smiled, his face twisted into a lopsided grin, which in other circumstances might appear endearing. Today it gave Brennan chills. He swiped his finger across the screen. The next picture, a crime scene photo of Ruth with a gaping hole over her heart, appeared. Didn't end well for her either. Someone made sure of it. Cassie has been studying four cold cases based on your old photos. The police reports identified three out of the four victims as being serial killers themselves. Ruth here was not, yet she murdered four husbands. The old man's hand shook as he picked one of the blue, candy-coated almonds off the table and tossed it in his mouth. The hard shell clacked against his teeth. So Cassie says. So Ruth says. Crazy, right? For 80 years, no one knew Ruth was a killer until she told Cassie herself in explicit detail. Then Cassie proved it with her research. So how did you know, I wonder? Does photo whispering run in the family? You're talking gibberish, boy. Cassie's ghost stories have gone to your head. Her research is sound. That's how she ropes you in, with reams and reams of research. Trust an old newsman. Everything looks good on paper. He lowered his gravelly voice so Brendan was forced to lean in close. I know what you're thinking, detective. Do me a favor and keep your crazy theories to yourself. I never claim to be a saint, but I love my peach, and she loves me. I don't give a shit what the world thinks of me, but I won't go to the grave knowing Cassie thinks I'm a monster. Do you know what happened to the last person who called me a monster? Brennan shook his head. Neither do your peers. 
Are you threatening me, Mr. Dolan? No, son, I'm encouraging you, encouraging you to do the right thing. Brennan snorted. Encouraging me to continue your charade. Cassie worships the ground you walk on. She thinks you're a hero, and you were. What happened? War. War is what happened. Every hero is another man's enemy. I learned that on the battlefield. What they call you afterward depends on whether you were on the winning side. Dolan picked up the folded newspaper and twisted it like a rope. I was as deep in an island trench when I got a Dear John letter from my best girl. Like most of us, I drank too much when I came home. One day after I'd had a few too many, I decided to pay her a visit. Thought maybe I could change her mind. Turns out she was already hitched to another guy. He took out the twisted paper with a snap. I took it poorly. How poorly? Dolan's voice hardened. Let's just say I shocked myself, which is hard to do. I've made a lot of mistakes in my life, but never twice. She didn't deserve what I did. After that, I poured my rage into worthier pursuits, sobered up when I met my wife. Life was good until my boy was killed in Nam. Had a relapse, but then my grandbaby Aaron was born and things were good again. Worthier pursuits. Brennan's stomach tightened. You murdered those four people. I know it, and I think Cassie knows it too on a subconscious level. It's just too painful for her to accept, so she's using her best friend Ruth to tell the tale. Ruth can't see her killer's face anymore. None of them can. But Ruth remembers. You looked her in the eye and shot her at point-blank range. She figured it out from there. She can't see her face or the face of the person who killed the other three. Therefore, the murderer must be one and the same. He must be you. Now you are talking crazy. Got any evidence to support those wild claims? Brennan looked away. Didn't think so. Dolan's crooked grin widened. If you're expecting a confession, you're about to be sorely disappointed. Maybe on my deathbed, not before. You're supposed to be proving my shit pile of a grandson-in-law killed Aaron. I knew Ryan was worthless from the moment I shook his hand on their first date, smooth as a baby's bottom. He'd never put in a hard day's work in his life, still hasn't. I warned Aaron, but she told me I was being too protective. You had a daughter once, didn't you, Detective Brennan? Brennan nodded. Cassie's investigative skills had a downside. Dolan obviously knew everything about him. No point in lying. You're changing the subject. Cassie told me what happened to your baby. You know, there's no such thing as being too protective. You would have moved heaven and earth for her, I've no doubt. I feel the same about Cassie. I won't let her money-grubbing leech of a father ruin her life. I'm old news. Start focusing your attention where it should be, on Ryan McConnell and his mobster brother. The case closes tomorrow. I've got my boss and Beck McConnell's goons breathing down my neck and I can't prove shit. I've got some sedatives in her system and burns on her chest and that's it. It's not enough for an arrest, much less a conviction. Dolan's smirk disappeared and he grew quiet. Do you think Ryan killed her? Yes, but I think he had help. Brennan hooked the tip of his finger in the collar of Dolan's gown, fully exposing the burns on his chest. I was hoping you could help me with that. I can't. You wouldn't believe me anyway. Try me. I'm getting used to the Dolan brand of reality. No. No one would believe you either. A good cop is hard to find. No sense ruining your career this late in the game. 
Dolan leaned back in his bed and nested his head on a pile of fluffy white pillows. Their stiffly starched covers crackled with each subtle twitch. He closed his eyes. It's over then. He'll commit her or have her killed. I won't let that happen. Dolan opened his eyes. How exactly? He carefully plucked another almond out of the bag and studied it as if it were a rare gem. You have no idea what you're dealing with. Then tell me. Dolan coughed, a deep phlegmy spasm that shook the metal bed until it rattled. It's not your job to protect my family, detective. It's mine. I've done a piss-poor job of it over the last twenty years. Got lazy. Grew old. I aim to fix all that. Go back to your life. You tried. I appreciate your efforts. He crushed the candy between his yellowed teeth and sighed. Tastes like marzipan. Thanks for the almonds. You're a good man. It takes a bad one to know. Chapter 27 November 11th Sixth Journal Entry Father Pignotti prayed for me today. How disgusting is that? He told me I'm surrounded by sinners and their sins, dirty by proxy. I need to be cleansed. Let me save you, my dear. I wasn't always a bad man. A life can be made right. You're already dead. I pointed out the obvious with a hint of snark. I live on in your mind, Cassandra. With photographs and memories, is anyone ever really dead? I asked why he would pray for me now after six years of torment and epilepsy after six years of him silently judging me from his prominent place on the photo room's walls. Because the lions are circling, my little lamb, and soon they will pounce. You could use my kind of divine intervention right about now. He whispered a prayer in garbled Latin, afraid perhaps that Ruth might overhear and intervene. She did. She told him to go to hell. I think he's already there. Chapter 28 Brennan was pleasantly surprised to arrive home alive. No car bomb, no goons trailing his bumper, no killer bats in the building's dark and creepy parking garage. The window at the end of the hallway was ajar as usual, but aside from the wind's eerie whistle, all was quiet. Not a creature was stirring, not even a crow. He was mildly disappointed. He expected El's avian friend to make an appearance. Crazy, as if the bird would know it was her birthday, as if it would know how badly he needed that connection. The crow, his personal liaison. But perhaps he had another. He could think of only one way to find out. The apartment was as silent as the hallway. Usually he clicked on the TV for background noise, but not tonight. Tonight he was a man on a mission. He yanked five printed photo books, one for each year of Elle's life off the bookshelf, and spread them across the table. Julia was a photo freak. She took hundreds, if not thousands, of pictures and turned them into calendars, books, pins, you name it. Their family Christmas photo card with a different theme each year and color-coordinated outfits to match was the stuff of legend. 
With Elle's birthday being in late November, the Christmas card marked the first page of each photo book. Brennan flipped hurriedly through years one through four, pausing over any image that triggered a particularly happy memory. The fifth and final book was the thickest, as if Julia believed Elle's cancer journey, God, how he hated that word, would someday represent nothing more than an unforeseen side trip worth documenting for posterity. His hand hovered over the thick volume. He wanted a specific photo, which he recalled being near the end of the collection, but he didn't want to look through the rest to find it. Time for a beer. He paced the room and finished half the bottle in a few gulps. Now he was ready. He strummed his fingers across the book and the cover swished open. Elle appeared healthy at first and their Christmas photo in which he wore the world's ugliest sweater was as epic as the rest. But with each turn of the page, his baby got thinner, her skin paler. Julia's smile grew forced and brittle and a hint of panic lurked within her wide brown eyes. He knew the feeling well. His chest tightened with the same anxiety he had experienced every damn day for six months and then some. He pursed his lips, exhaled slowly and kept flipping, ignoring the thickening in the back of his throat that spoke of impending tears. Two-thirds of the way through, he stopped and smoothed the page flat. This, this was it. The perfect one. He'd swooped her into a big ol' hug. Julia had caught the exact moment Elle, her bald head hidden by a tiara and veil, squealed with delight. The joy on their faces was indelible. They'd gotten a good report from her MRI after finishing a brutal round of chemo. He'd bought her ice cream. For a split second, everything seemed right in the world. It was going to be okay. Until it wasn't. He stared at the photo, his breath hard and fast. With a quick flick of the wrist, he ripped the page from the photo book, slammed it shut, and threw it across the table. It slid off the edge and hit the floor with a slap. If Julia knew what he'd done, that he'd mutilated one of her precious books, she'd stick another pin in that voodoo doll of hers. His right temple spasmed as his morning headache flared back to life. He rubbed his temple and groaned. Maybe she already had. Holy revelation, say it isn't so. Is Cassie's beloved great-grandfather and World War II hero a serial killer? Tune in to the next episode for more of this tale to unravel. So don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen to The Photo Thief now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Tune in to hear all our audiobooks as we release them right here on CamCat Unwrapped, a serialized podcast. The first two episodes of every book can always be found here, but subsequent episodes will be available for free listening only for a short time after their release. After that, they'll be gone. But don't worry, the audiobooks are available for purchase on Audible and other major retailers. CamCat Unwrapped also offers other CamCat books as podcasts. Also, check out our background episodes where we unwrap exclusive content relating to our books, including interviews with the authors, editors, and other industry professionals. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet.